0: Bookcraft is pleased to present The Passover and the Sacrament by Dr. Truman G. Madsen from the series Jesus of Nazareth. The Passover and the Sacrament. We go now in imagination to Mount Zion and to the room of the Last Supper. First, the setting. You remember that Jesus had come riding on a foal and that those From Galilee, especially, spread before him palm leaves and shouted, Hoshana, Hoshana, which means approximately, save us now. Then to the temple where he did what is called the last cleansing, then returned to Bethany, and then back. This is the period of the annual Passover and the population of Jerusalem swelled to another 120,000 people in addition to its 60,000, crowded with people and with their flocks and herds. It's also a period when the authorities, the Roman authorities, were concerned for the safety, expecting perhaps a revolution During or a riot during this season. Hence, they were anxiously atop the Antonia Fortress at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, watching the assembling multitudes. All this is important to know because the record is clear that Jesus had kept his Bethany home secret, that he was fully aware of conspiracies working against him, and that Judas knew the location of his Bethany home and of the place he abode, according to Luke, on the Mount of Olives, became very important. Therefore, the Last Supper Room was not even known to Peter and John until they found it, having been sent. And as they gathered, apparently not in the pattern we see in religious art not for example as in da Vinci where there is a long table and men are sitting side by side in upright chairs but rather in a pattern that involved a semi-reclining posture. Having so gathered and begun the long Passover Seder they probably went through a pattern which is millennia old and we can extrapolate both from the early records and from the contemporary practice of this feast to know approximately the procedure. Jesus announces to the assembled twelve, I wanted so much to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I must tell you that I shall not eat it with you again until we sit down together at the Messianic feast in the kingdom of God. Now, Pesach is a time of great rejoicing. It is a time of celebration. It memorializes deliverance, and that is in a form that attempts to have every participant think and feel as if he was present For the deliverance from Egypt, and the spirit, therefore, is one not of anticipation of suffering but of deliverance. Jesus is now speaking of anticipated suffering and of being separated from them and saying to them, this is the last time we will be together until the great future, Kingdom of God Feast. If they followed the Seder, there was a moment now when they introduced, Jesus leading, the first of four cups, known as the Kiddush, and would have said something close to Baruch Atta Adonai, Blessed art thou, O God, thanking God for this memorial of redemption. And then each present would have taken a sip of the cup of wine, or cups. Then there would have been, if tradition was followed, a ceremonial washing of hands. Seems a little strange to us because it was done three times, and yet the principle is inherent in our own sources. Cleanse your hands and your feet before me, says a modern commandment, and is in the context of preparing for temple worship. At this point, a piece of parsley and some hyssop is uh, placed from the center of the table for all to partake. And there may be a connection with the dipping of parsley in salt water to the memorializing of the tears of the bondage of the Israelites before they were delivered. So they would have taken of that and Jesus would have now broken bread the first of three times but this is not bread as we know it it's the bread of the Passover it's matzah meaning unleavened bread and has the appearance almost in its thinness or slightness of cardboard deliberately again to remind that they didn't have time as they left Egypt to cook bread and to have it rise from leaven and so it's a reminder of haste and as they put it of the bread of affliction. Jesus would have broken the bread in the first of three times and then all of it would have been eaten. Again the washing of hands ceremonially and then the breaking Uh, of bread in the reminder or remainder of Passover. And at this point, Jesus is saying something significantly that changes the pattern. In the present Pesach practice, and how old this is, we do not know for sure, it is the requirement of the first or youngest of the children to say what is different about tonight? And the asking of that question is both rhetorical and deliberate. And the answer then is, tonight is different because tonight we relive deliverance from the ancient problem. Well, Jesus now says as he breaks bread, take, eat. This is, bread is like my own body which will be broken for you now in fact as we know his body was not broken in the Roman pattern his bones remained intact but his body was broken into we read from the JST that the statement was not the metaphor that has caused so much division in the Christian world He did not say, this is my body in the strictest sense, but said, in remembrance of or like my body. And he does the same when he takes of the wine. Now, in the awareness that there is affliction ahead, Peter says, in effect, we've come out of worse And Jesus replies, Peter, Satan is after you. The image is Satan desires to sift you as wheat. And then he adds, but when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And Peter replies, Lord, I would even go to prison for you. And then the response of Jesus before the cock crows You shall deny me three times. Now, it is important here to remind ourselves that though Peter does three times say something in the mode of denial, he never denied that Jesus is the Christ. He denied knowing him the first time, denied being one of the Galileans the second time, and then repeated that the third with an oath. This is serious, but it is not the same as repudiating his witness and testimony of Jesus Christ. And we have, from our own sources, the glimpse of the other brethren in the context of Jesus speaking of sinning against the Holy Ghost. We read that all of them thought he was talking about them because, says the record, they had been afraid to confess him before men and had even spoken evil of him. And in the consciousness of that, Jesus says, according to RJST, He who speaks a word against the Son of Man, comma, and repenteth, comma, shall be forgiven. But whoso speaks a word against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. As yet, the Holy Ghost had not yet been poured out fully upon the Twelve. And Peter's denial, as President Kimball has taught us, was given on a night when the very survival of the Church, not just of Peter, depended upon his avoiding the conspiracies of the enemies of the Christian movement just as Jesus himself often had been delivered because, as he explained, mine hour is not yet come. Now in the Passover grace it is said something approximately like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who bringest forth fruit from the earth. Blessed art thou who has sanctified us with thy commandment and enjoined us to eat unleavened cakes in Jesus later prayer that night which we call today the high priestly prayer he speaks and prays for the sanctification and unity of his brethren who now are becoming more concerned it's in the same setting that and this must have been a shock Jesus says, One of you shall betray me. Each of them looks first at themselves and then to him and says, Is it I? Is it I? Jesus breaks a piece of the bread, reaches to the haroset, as it is called. It's a, a kind of paste, and dips it and says, Whoso dips with me, the same as he. And then turns to Judas and says, that which thou doest, do quickly. There are Bible commentaries who, which, describe this and speculate that if any other of the twelve, or all of them together, had really understood what was about to happen, Judas would not have left the room. But they did not grasp how serious the situation was. In fact, by now, again from our own sources, they have been troubled at the statement of the departure of Jesus, troubled at word of a betrayal, and now further are sorrowed because he is introducing his own imminent sacrifice and making it clear that this is indeed their final meeting together. And so comes the necessity for him to give them comfort. He takes the wine after what would have been traditionally the singing of three psalms. And one of them includes in 26 repetitions the sentence, His mercy endureth forever. Jesus takes the wine says, take this, divide it among yourselves, or in our idiom, let us share it this last time, and says again, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine with you again until the kingdom of God comes. And then they would have sung the Hallel, which is a kind of closing prayer. And in Jewish tradition, they do not bless the food before the partaking, but usually afterward. And then there is a kind of doxology that praises and glorifies and exalts God. But now we turn to an ordinance, an ordinance of submission as well as of comfort. Jesus disrobed from his outer garments, brought a basin of water, girded himself with a towel, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. Now remember, we're in the Passover season. The city is crowded. These men have gathered from various points to an upper room. In those days, they did not wear shoes but sandals, and they often wore on their feet nothing at all. Not only the human refuse cluttered the roads, but the droppings of animals. To begin to wash the feet in this mode was an act not only of humility, but of servility. This was submission to a kind of slave labor. No one except a slave would be asked to do such a chore. And it is because of that that Peter is opposed and says, in effect, this is beneath your dignity. You will not wash my feet. And then Jesus says something very strong. Peter, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. This is strong language. It is in our terminology equivalent to saying, what I am now doing is essential to your redemption. And then Peter, the impulsive Peter, as we frequently say, says, all right, uh, wash everything. Now, we have an earlier glimpse of Jesus' intent by his statement that the washing of the head or other parts of the body is not enough, but that one is not clean every whit until this act has been performed. But then further he explains, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. This in John 13. And the ye also is his way of teaching them that they as servants are really serving each other and are to follow his example. The servant is not greater than his Lord. We have a modern revelation that speaks of those who bear the priesthood and speaks of their being receptive to the light and the life and the spirit and the power of Jesus Christ and says that from that perspective they are the greatest of all but then it adds notwithstanding they are the least and the servant of all this in the Doctrine and Covenants section 50 and so he is now demonstrating what he has throughout his life taught he's demonstrating condescension humility, and being willing to serve. Now, historically, in the church, the ancient as well as the modern church, this ordinance, for so it has been designated, has had at least three main functions. It is notable that it is usually associated with partaking of bread and wine, and that has been taught us in connection with the school of the prophet's in Doctrine and Covenant, Section 88. It was an initiatory ordinance whereby these persons could become susceptible to and mutually responsive to their shared testimonies and understanding. So they were defined as clean and pure from the blood of their generation. It was also a preparatory process at Kirtland uh, in terms of the temple endowment, in that case a preliminary one. And finally, as the prophet beautifully summarizes it in his account of the Kirtland temple experiences, it is calculated to unite our hearts that we may be one in feeling and sentiment, and that our faith may be strong. And he adds elsewhere, and that the devil may have no power over us here. One note on the aftermath of the introduction of this ordinance in Kirtland says, The Holy Spirit rested down upon us, and we continued in the Lord's house all night, prophesying and giving glory to God. Through that lens, we can return to the Last Supper and see that Jesus is trying to unite his brethren and prepare them for his last great discourses and teachings. And they did remain together, uh, longer perhaps than usual, for though it is customary to go three or four hours in the evening, right after sundown. The tradition says that the Passover feast does not end until everyone is asleep. Well, in that setting, then, we can remember one other statement pertaining to the washing of feet. To the sisters, a modern discourse ended, sisters, it is by union of feeling that we obtain power with God. Now it is a beautiful thing to come to unity of thought, a beautiful thing to unite in an action or to act in concert, but more beautiful still is to be one in heart, and that's what was being attempted in this last meeting in Jerusalem. A footnote now on the sacramental prayers. Because we have the Book of Mormon and Third Nephi, we have two clearly written, preserved, transmitted prayers which are available to no one else in the Christian world. Once I was present in a meeting called in the eastern United States and involving almost every major Christian denomination. And there was discussion and some difficulty on the question of how they could together partake of what is called communion. And uh, since none of the different denominations wanted to give up its own traditional procedures and prayers, none of which incidentally can be traced back earlier than the third century, they finally decided that they would choose a text that none of them had ever used that went back to about the 11th century and they would proceed as if that were acceptable to all of them. Well this is one of three set prayers that have been introduced in the modern church and not a word is to be varied as the prayers are offered. And three clear insights emerge from the prayers which are not as clear in the gospel records of the Last Supper. The first is that there should indeed be two prayers. They should be offered separately. One memorializing the body and the other the blood. And that the priest is to, quote, kneel with the church, end quote. We do not, in fact, in the church, have pews or arranged benches which make possible the kneeling forward physically of the entire congregation. But the spirit of the instruction is that in the process of blessing the sacrament, all should be involved and should in spirit kneel as the priest, does. There is no evidence, of course, in the New Testament that Jesus knelt as he blessed the bread and blessed the wine. Second, the ultimate point of the prayers is in the last phrase, namely, that they may always have his spirit to be with them. The word always is used in the first prayer and an equivalent in the second. Among the Nephites, to whom he introduced the sacrament twice, and both in a beautiful setting uh, of preparation, he explained that if they would always remember him, they would have his spirit to be with them. Now, one reading of that is if they continued always to memorialize him by meeting together oft and partaking of the sacrament but it seems that the intended meaning is more inclusive. A condition of the fulfillment of the sacramental prayers is that in all of our lives, at the back of our minds and at the center of our hearts, we remember him. And that is the ultimate condition of the promise that they may always have his spirit to be with them.